Welcome to Nevertheless, She Persisted. I'm your host, Sadie. Every Friday, I post interviews about mental health, dialectical behavioral therapy, and teenage life. These episodes break down my mental health journey, teach skills to help you cope with life, and showcase testimonials from teens just like you. Whether you've struggled yourself or just want to improve your mental fitness, this podcast is your inspiration to live a life you love and keep persisting. Hello, you guys. Welcome back to another episode. Happy Friday or whatever day it is that you are listening. I hope you are having a wonderful week. So this week, I have my very close friend, Daisy, on the podcast. We went to therapeutic boarding school together. So we were in treatment together a bit over a year ago now at this point. So this episode is a little bit different from what I normally do because it's much more conversational and relaxed as we do of that rapport as being really close friends, living together, literally sisters. So I wanted to give a couple of disclaimers before we get into the full episode. First and foremost, I want to give a trigger warning. If you have struggled with sexual assault or rape, I want to kind of give a warning at this point and say this episode is not for you. Additionally, we do really dive deep into the trauma that wilderness therapy and intensive treatment can cause. And so I want to, again, say that I full-heartedly support therapy. And my treatment journey, especially at McLean Hospital, was what saved my life. It changed my life and it saved me and I am forever grateful for that. And there's a huge lack of regulation in the field of adolescent treatment and especially intensive adolescent treatment. And so this episode is meant to bring light on that and not to say that it's not effective for everyone. This was our experience. And again, I do stand behind therapy. I do stand behind treatment and research is extremely important and it's very crucial as a parent or as a guardian to think about, do the pros outweigh the cons of this situation? Is this absolutely necessary to uplift my child and remove them from home to get treatment to help their mental health? So, given that disclaimer, I am so excited for you to hear this episode. It's honestly hilarious. Daisy has one of the craziest personal life stories that I've ever heard. As I say in the next couple of minutes, like, if there's a party story, it's this girl. So, I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and yeah, let's get into it. Okay, so Daisy, I wanted you to come back on Okay, first of all, if you guys haven't listened, way back in the archives of the podcast, Daisy was on, I think, episode three or four. I don't recommend you listen because I was a really bad interviewer and the episode was absolute shit. I just want to give the context. This is Daisy's second appearance, but I don't recommend you listen to the first one. So, Daisy Bird Graham has one of the most interesting life stories that I've ever heard in my whole life. Like, if there's ever a flex at a dinner party of like, oh, I know a crazy it's Daisy. Like, this is the person. So who not to have on the podcast? So I was born in Union City, Tennessee, which is a very small town in uh, the South. The man that delivered me delivered my father. And then that doctor's father delivered my grandfather uh, all the way back for a very, very far time. So you can get the vibe of Union City that way. We love it. Um, it. My mom was a 20-year-old hippie and my dad was a 35-year-old restaurateur. So my mother got pregnant with me, and then my great-grandparents said that they would not include me in the will and that I would not be able to be a grand if they didn't get married. So then they got married. And this from is already, there, like, so whack. Like, guys, this was less than, like, 18 years ago. <laughs> like, let's just put this in perspective here. This is not the 18... 18- <laughs> okay, continue. Oh, my God. So... 
then they ended up getting married and their first wedding actually first, the first, first time wedding. the first time they tried getting married my mom didn't show up left okay, my dad at the this. altar yes it was like a multi-million dollar wedding and my mother didn't show up and so then after having a discussion with my grandmother about where my mom wanted to go financially in the future yeah, so my my grandmother sat down with my mother, had a stern little talking to her about where she wanted to financially be in the future, and then they got married in our parlor, in the parlor of the house that my father grew up in, that my grandfather grew up in. So I want to ask why this discussion, this is so off topic, why did this discussion change the tra- trajectory of getting your mom to marry your dad? I don't know. I don't know what happened in that discussion, but I also know that the... My uncle's fiance, mm-hmm. they were going to get married. She was a gold digger. And <laughs> she, on like the night before they were supposed to be married, she blinded my uncle. Um, like, her and her brother beat the shit out of him. <gasps> and she threw a stiletto at his eye. Oh. And it never recovered. And she kept the ring. It, it was a, a family heirloom ring. And when we were trying to get it back, she said that she had lost it in Katrina. But then my grandmother drove down to New Orleans in her BMW. So this woman, for years, had refused to give it back. So finally, my grandmother drove by herself to New Orleans. And we don't know what happened. We just know that she came back with the ring. So there's a lot of, like, Hamilton-esque, the rumor had happened vibes, like, going on right now. Yeah, so... Over and over and over. Yes. So then, to me, though, so my father put me on a horse when I was three years old, and it was just a fun little lesson. It was, like, a birthday party, I think, and the trainer said, oh, wow, she has a very natural gift for horse riding. And my dad said... How would she be able to know that from, like, a petting zoo? Horse riders have a certain... It wasn't a petting zoo. It was was a lovely barn. It was just a birthday party. Yeah, it was, like, a real trainer. It was a real trainer. (laughs) Like, Daisy's at the farmer's market. She has a gift. (laughs) Yeah. No, but she was like, oh, wow. Like, it was just something that you throw in, like, just, oh, like, she would be a good horse rider. My dad was like, I'm sorry, What? Okay, so then now that's her thing. And so from there, I got my first pony at three years old. His name was Pink Charlie. That's because I wanted to name him Charlie, and my little sister wanted to name him Pink. So both. Awesome. So my dad said, compromise, Pink Charlie. Love it. I went on to pony finals with Pink Charlie, and then I got my real horse, my first real horse, Eli, at seven. Uh-huh. And that's when I started to do the super competitive stuff, and... Mm-hmm. Then at 13, I bought Archie, and Archie was my first show horse. Mm-hmm. And I'll post a at, photo of Archie on the Instagram, guys. If you want to see yeah. Archie, Archie's a beautiful man. He's, he's a beauty. Him. And Archie was from this woman named Ann White. And Ann White is a very important person. So my parents had this have this dream for their children that we're all going to be the best in our fields no matter what it is anyway when i was 13 years old at the st louis charity horse show i bought archie there and then i went back home and ann white very casually was like you should come stay with us next summer and like ride with us and most people would have been like oh haha yeah like sure we will of course yeah my father said 
Oh, so you're going to Kansas. So my Great. mom calls Kansas. How the soon people can we in- book the flight? Yeah. My mom calls the people in Kansas and she says, so are you serious? Can Daisy come stay with y'all for the summer and do horse riding? And that's when my entire life changed. I feel like that was, I was the most anticlimactic way you could have said that. And that's when my entire life changed. <laughs> and that's when my entire life changed. Boom. Okay, continue. <laughs> As a 13-year-old girl who thought that I was really good at horse riding, and I was thrown into the well, you extreme. I, I was good, but I wasn't. I wasn't these people good. Okay. I was riding with elites. Okay. And so I was thrown into this world of extreme horse riding, riding with Olympians, riding with very highbrow riders, and it was the best experience of my life okay, honestly so, it's i'm gonna i'm gonna, I'm gonna okay. elaborate i feel like so, you have some juxtaposition going on my entire life i was trying to escape union city i was trying to escape my parents i was trying to escape Why? my stepmother i had well, felt maybe we should the, wrap horses and then go back to family okay okay that probably okay, makes cool. more yes okay so with horse riding i ended up living with this woman full time so i was paying her to be my horse trainer mm-hmm. and also she was supposed to be my parental figure she was supposed to be my mother so it was an extreme blurred line of who what role we were playing if we were playing mother or daughter or if we were playing client trainer mm-hmm. and so it would be things like she would be making me dinner and we i would be eating with her family but then after dinner she would tell me that i need to write her a check for ten thousand dollars it's a I very magic it's a very uncomfortable situation where you don't really know where you stand. And so I did that every summer up until my freshman year of high school. And then my freshman summer, my parents said that I could live there full time. And I, I stopped doing regular high school. I did online high school to be a professional horse rider full time and break into the Olympics. It was here that I experienced a lot of the trauma that I've had Like, I had a really debilitating knee injury that still hasn't really healed. I was slung off of the horse, spun around, flipped over the front of the horse onto the jump, and then slammed against a concrete wall. You know, everyday things. (laughs) She says casually. Moving on. And it was a daily occurrence to see people get knocked off of horses in ways that they will never recover from. You, you see people crying, and, and you see mothers running out to their daughter in the middle of the arena and not not wanting to touch her. You can't touch them if they fall yeah. off a horse because you never know if it's a broken spine. The ambulances, the EMTs. Riding a horse is one of those things where you are constantly scared the entire time. The part of you is telling you because you're out of control. You are completely out of control. No matter what trainer tells you that you have this control, you have this, these choices. At the end of the day, the horse can do whatever it wants. The horse can kill you, literally, can murder you. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's like those videos you see about like shark attacks. It's like, they don't want to hurt you, but they can and will. Oh my God. Well, crazy. So, because horses are prey animals, so they're terrified by anything. Mm-hmm. Like, my first horse, Eli, anytime the wind went through the trees, he would dart. I mean, like, start running like a racehorse. Yeah. Archie wouldn't go near water. And it was just these things that people, it, you were horrified 
about regularly, but you you couldn't do anything. You, you mm-hmm. couldn't you couldn't say no. You couldn't look at your trainer and say, "I'm not comfortable with that. I don't want to do that. I'm scared." That what was would an option. If you did that? I I don't know. I never did. No dinner for a week. It's you don't say no. Yeah. But the reason that I decided to do this whole horse riding thing was mainly to escape my family in Union mm-hmm. City. So wow. Union City is one of the most toxic environments in the world. My mother calls it a vortex. Union City in the 80s had more millionaires per capita than that we were in the top 10 cities of millionaires per capita That's for a town of 10,000 people. That's insane. Because uh, it the Union City concept is you have a son, your son goes off to college, then he goes to some large city, or that be New York, San Fran, Atlanta, and he makes all of his money, he makes his fortune. Mm-hmm. He finds a wife, some poor wife who doesn't know what Union City really is. And then later on, when they want to have kids, and when this boy's father has gotten old, he moves back to Union City, takes over the family business drops whatever previous business he had and his wife is stuck pregnant in a town where she doesn't know anyone where everybody knows each other that's why union city also is in the top 50 in the united states for divorces (laughs) for a town of ten thousand people oh my god and it's so we have an incredible amount of wealthy people with no emotional intelligence whatsoever Union City runs on high school football. It's literally like you see in the movies. Everybody is there <laughs> on the weekends. Even people with, that don't have kids in football. Like, yeah. just adults. Random adults. Just Are just up, at you know. the high school football game. And uh, there are five founding families of Union City. They're mm-hmm. not really the founders. They didn't start Union City. But they're the ones who have all the control. Yeah. I can't... I don't think I can legally say their yeah, names. Yeah, don't say names. <laughs> guys. This might be related to the FBI. It might not. We don't know. <laughs> But the Grams are one of them. So the Grams are one of them. Okay. Daisy's a Gram, in case that was. I am a Gram. So my parents got a divorce when I was five years old. Mm -hmm. If you couldn't tell from the beginning of this episode when I said that my mother was a 20 year old hippie from Connecticut and my father. She had the long hair, boho style, like long skirts. She's a yoga teacher. And my father is a southern restaurateur born and raised in a mississippi lifestyle grew up doing gentlemanly sports like fox hunting and (laughs) that's a gentleman that's okay that's a sport like fox hunting bear like on a horse i don't know like a horse no on a horse you know fox hunt where you ride horses through the (laughs) wood okay wait okay back up so how why would you not just like go on a in a car well no you you hunt the fox through the woods on a horse so you let the fox out of a cage oh wait so you can't you can the fox in the you first pre- place. it's a game this is it's whack. a hunting game oh my god i don't i don't know how much this attributes to my trauma <laughs> I, I, I think know. very minorly or not at all, but I'm just, I've never heard of this ever. Yeah. Okay. So he, he was, he was raised a Southern gentleman. Yeah. And he ended up going to the Culinary Institute okay, wait, of America. Really quickly, is there like a warehouse of foxes? 
No, you get the fox, like, just right before. Okay. Okay, I just have to yeah. clarify. Continue. One fox at a time. Just, we're going to yeah. have to discuss this more later. I've yeah. never been so confused. Yes. So, my both of my grandparents went to Old Miss. Both of my grandparents went to Old Miss. Both of my great-grandparents went to Old Miss. And it goes very far back. Old Miss is the University of Mississippi, for those of you that aren't in the SEC. I didn't really know what that was until I met Daisy either. Yeah. So... We are Mississippi people, and there's a lot of expectations growing up in the South that people don't really associate with the South. A lot of people associate the South with, you know, the whole redneck stereotype of, like, Mm -hmm. people pregnant before 16 and, and the whole southern redneck but that's really not what the south is the reason that you think of the south in a redneck sense it's because the wealth gap is so large in the south Mm -hmm. so you are either very very wealthy in the south or you are very very poor there is no in between so growing up if no one makes a documentary about you someday i'm gonna be extremely disappointed in the entertainment industry like you know what it's like like i don't let me think title (laughs) The trauma of Daisy Bird, like you know, like where mm-hmm. it has like the newspapery, like yeah. I'm gonna have to pitch that to someone. Yeah. So my family, my parents obviously had a divorce, but it wasn't a very messy divorce because my mom just gave up, and mm-hmm. the person presiding over the divorce was from Union City. Both lawyers were from Union City. Went to high school with my dad. <laughs> it's the the law the judge presiding over the case was my uncle's godfather. There's, oh my god. There's no sense of justice. Yeah. So, my mom slowly tapered off with custody, and that's where my parents like to think that a lot of my trauma came from. It's from that divorce, but that is mm-hmm. not the case. The majority of my trauma came from growing up in a household with this much pressure. Mm-hmm. I was wearing Spanx at nine years old because my family thought that I was not skinny enough. Nine years old is ever third Spanx. and fourth grade. Ever. Yeah. So oh I was wearing Spanx with my dresses then. I had to get a Brazilian waxing at 12 years old so that I would look cute in a bikini for our family trip to the Virgin Islands. Oh, my God. I was not allowed to cut my hair. From when I was seven years old until I cut it for the first time at boarding school. Which was last year, guys. And my dad cried. <laughs> oh my god, did he? I didn't even know that. Yes, he cried. Because he has a serious attachment to our childhoods, and that was sort of the last thing he was holding on to. Yeah. And so I was desperate to escape. I was desperate mm-hmm. to escape what Not I was experiencing day to day i have some issues with my stepmother (laughs) to you (laughs) pretty pretty in-depth issues i would say (laughs) we have never had a very good relationship i look i'm almost a carbon copy of my mother Mm -hmm. and that never sat well with her Mm -hmm. and we have had serious issues for most of my life Physically, for, I'd say, middle school, I was mm-hmm. it was some physical issues. And then after that, it's just an emotional beratement. But that's why I was so desperate to get out. Natural. So then, then I'm going gonna, gonna to go into the end of Kansas. Mm-hmm. 
So after living in Kansas for four months, I had a phone call with my therapist on October the 2nd. Tom Petty also died on this day. Oh, perfect information. I'm glad we put So if that's an omen. It's, it's an <laughs> omen because Tom Petty died on this day. So uh, it was October the 2nd. Tom Petty had died. I had just received words that Tom Petty had died. A tragic day. And then I had a phone call with my therapist, and she said, I have reason to believe that your parents are coming to get you today, that you will see them by the end of today, and they're coming to get you from Kansas. Okay, I think I either would have died on the spot or run away and joined the circus. Like, I don't know. It sounds like... So I knew, I knew it. I had, I contacted all the people in Kansas. They came Mm -hmm. to pick me up from where I was doing my online school. And I went to go get the areas, my my room as ready as I could. Mm -hmm. And then they... You're so calm about talking about this. Like, that's what's crazy. I know. So then they came and got me and it was a whole ordeal. There was screaming and crying and it was, it was horrible. It was one of the worst days of my life. And they were like, they eventually found out that the therapist had told me. And then they like. Did they fire her? Sort of. I, I think I had a few more meetings with her, but mm-hmm. they were pissed at her. And I, I go back home mm-hmm. to Union City and I had four months of punishment. So four months of punishment. I feel like I forgot about that somehow. I felt like we skipped over it at some point. Like, I don't even know where I thought that was. Okay, four months of punishment. So four months of punishment is what my dad called it. So it was four months of living for Kansas, living in Kansas. I was going to have to pay for it for four months of misery at home. What were you being punished for, for in Kansas? That is a question that everybody asks. Mm -hmm. There's not really a clear answer. Mm -hmm. You need to be logic. Yeah, I don't know what I really did. Nothing went horribly wrong. So to but, this so day, to my... give listeners context, Daisy has been in how, however many years of therapy, intensive treatment, boarding school, and still does not have an answer about these four months that she's about to discuss. Nope. Mad. Okay. Four months. Anyways. Yeah, so four months of punishment mm-hmm. included... For the first two weeks, I was only allowed to eat lean proteins, drink water, grapefruit, and celery. If you don't know this, grapefruit and celery, it uh, requires more calories to consume them than they have. Because my parents thought that I had gained too much weight. So that was the first two weeks. For the rest of the four months, my parents had put me in the nursery... They had given my bedroom to my little sister Stella. They gutted the nursery. It had white walls, Wasn't one there a dresser ghost in there as well. Yeah, we can't get into the ghost. Okay. There were white walls, white bedding, one pillow, one duvet, one dresser, one bedside table, and one lamp. I had two outfits. My parents picked the outfits in the morning, and. They dictated my day. I wasn't allowed to have any technology. I couldn't speak to any of my friends. I was... You haven't even gotten into the treatment yet. Yeah. (laughs) Just to clarify, this is not a psych ward. I was not allowed to speak to any of my friends. I think I said I was not allowed to go anywhere except for... I woke up in the morning. (laughs) I went to go work. I woke up at 4 a.m. to go work at the Coke plant from 4 to 7. (laughs) Mm-hmm. My family owns Coca-Cola bottling companies, so one of the Coke plants. 
Mm-hmm. And from there, I would go home, change into school clothes. School clothes was just what my parents picked out for me to wear to go to the office, my father's office, to do schoolwork. Nonstop, no breaks for seven hours. Oh Afterwards, I would go home, and I was had to do an hour kickboxing a day at the local kickboxing gym. From there, I did nothing else. <laughs> this was for four months. Mm-hmm. No, but if I saw someone on the street, I had to keep walking. I I feel like I'm missing something though. It's a part of four months of punishment. No makeup. Oh, no makeup. Mm-hmm. That's right. No makeup. No hair tools. And my uncle died during these four months of punishment, and I was not allowed to wear any makeup to his funeral, which sounds like stupid to the normal person but in union city that was one of the most traumatic things ever <laughs> uh we went to disney world during these four months i was not allowed to pick out my own clothes and how old were you sophomore year how old are you in your sophomore 16 uh, yes i turned 16 during four months of punishment no driving of course no birthday yeah no i wasn't allowed to celebrate my birthday oh. and i was recovering from an injury, horse riding, and then I finally told my parents that I was never going to get on a horse again mm-hmm. and to sell everything I had because I was done. Yeah. And this was the lowest point of my life by far, but this is why one of the reasons that I think to tell people that it's so important that people realize that mental illness is literally a chemical imbalance in your brain because I had every reason to want to die during those four months. Mm -hmm. I had every reason to just be miserable, but I don't have, I mean, I have chemical imbalances, Mm -hmm. but I don't have the particular one. I, even in those horrible circumstances, and even when we get into wilderness and the horrible Mm -hmm. circumstances of wilderness, there was never a time that I thought that there was no way out. I could always see the light at the end of the tunnel and I never I never wanted to end it or because even at the end of it I still loved life. I still loved living and I loved everything that the world had to offer and I wanted to be a part of it. In fact, that's part of where all the despair came from mm-hmm. was the lack of being allowed to experience life. And I feel like that's a lot of mindset as well. Like there's the portion, which is the chemical balance that did not allow you to get depressed because most people in that environment would have immediately just had that extreme amygdala response and gone so depressed. And also your positivity and mindset is so unlike anyone that I've ever met. So I think it's a good mix of the two. So if people could learn to see that positive and have that zest and love for life that also right. contributes to not experiencing that depression. So just definitely and, a balance, but crazy. And I think that the, the main thing is, is with growing up, while my family gave me all of that trauma, they also showed me all that life did have to offer. I've been all over the world. Mm-hmm. I've experienced all sorts of activities and different people and, and different cultures. And I've, Doing all of that made me realize that it it was, this has to end. Mm-hmm. It can't, it can't go on like this forever because eventually my life is going to go the way that I want it to go. Mm-hmm. And 
The only other time, the only time that's ever been worse than those four months of punishment was wilderness. Mm-hmm. But I'll get into wilderness, and well, I'll, it leads right into why I got sent to wilderness. So over four months of punishment, I had an ACT tutor named Blank. We won't. We won't discuss her name. Okay. Yeah, she's a horrible woman. She is a incredibly aggressively Christian woman who pushes her Christianity on all of her clients, mm-hmm. and. There, I met a boy named Charles. Is that really his full name? That is his first name, yes. Did not know. Charles, the first time that we ever got together, I was raped, basically. Not basically, just regular. I just regular? Okay. (laughs) I wasn't able to call it that. For years, not even when I did treatment with Stade D, I didn't call it. Yeah, that. that was a bit of a shock to me that you just said that. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I said no about 40 times, and then I finally said yes, but I cried the entire time, and apparently that is definitely one of the definitions of rape. And then I started dating him for two years. Wow. Yes, and... It was because what I've learned in learning about myself mm-hmm. is I was receiving no emotional connection or love from anybody for those four months. Yeah. And it opened myself up. Except for Della. To Della. Dexter. Yeah, except and for Stella. Dexter and Stella. Mm-hmm. They're, they're the twins, but they're my siblings. So. This does, this might not make sense, but it's what I've worked out with one of my therapists in that basically by allowing Charles to rape me, mm-hmm. I was receiving an emotional connection and a love I that want, I... I want to go back to by allowing him to rape you because by right. definition, that's not possible. Right. No, 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 no. But it's, it's a thing of why I said yes in the end. Why technically and legally I gave consent. Okay. Because I was receiving... Well, and when I say by allowing, it's... If y'all knew me, y'all would know that I'm not the kind of person that just lays down and let things happen to me. Mm -hmm. But in this particular instance, I did. Mm -hmm. And I have never done it again. I'm a fighter. I'm aggressive. Um, In fact, I'm aggressive when it's unnecessary to be aggressive. And... What I got out of it was a love and connection that I hadn't received in months. Mm-hmm. And I really, he and I really thought that we loved each other. Yeah. And it was horrible. He was cheating on me with multiple people, but I sort of felt like Jackie Kennedy <laughs> because I knew that at the end of the day, he was always going to come back to me. But we had a horrible toxic relationship, Mm -hmm. yelling and fighting and throwing wine bottles at each other, and... How old were you? I was 15. Crazy. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then... I I got sent to treatment, so that's Mm -hmm. what ended it, really, but... so, why? Why did you get sent to treatment? And that just, like, why didn't I get punished for horse showing? So, I had some testing done, as many people who are in treatment will know, beforehand. This said... So, they do psych testing, and it's basically, if you've ever had, like, any, like, learning 
differences. They do this like super extensive testing and they screen for dyslexia and ADHD, depression, anxiety, susceptibility to different illnesses. And it's basically to understand what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, and then oftentimes you'll make a plan to how to kind of combat those. So if you struggle with auditory comprehension, maybe you learn to read transcripts, like something like that. So if you are in the treatment world, when these diagnoses pop up, they get tagged kind of on you as your person. So like when I had mine done, it was depression, anxiety, and OCD, and then it's really hard to get rid of those labels, which I guess is a little bit off topic. But so the testing no, it... is done. They do all those tests, like have you on a scale of one to five lost interest in activities you used to enjoy. And if you meet the certain, what's that word, threshold, you are diagnosed clinically with that disorder, or illness, whatever it is. Okay, continue. I got this testing and this okay. testing said that there was a 1 in 20 chance that I might be a psychopath. If y'all know, you can't diagnose a psychopath until someone's 21 years old. So I was given one of the tests <laughs> saying that it would determine whether or not I might need further testing for psychopathy <laughs> when I'm older. <laughs> I got 1 in 20 chance. It's inadmissible 5%. in court if it's not a 1 in 3 but I had a 1 in 20 chance of being a psychopath. So then my parents heard Daisy is a psychopath. <laughs> natural, like, natural progression, 1 in 25% psychopath. It also said that I had severe ADHD and severe anxiety. I, my parents then said, how are we going to cure her psychopathy? And then they were talking to this Christian woman again who said... Yes, this Christian woman, and she said you need to look into wilderness therapies. And it is wilderness therapy, Daisy. Wilderness therapy is the worst experience of anyone's life. I hate it. I think it's illegal. I think it should be illegal, and it should be outlawed completely. Wilderness therapy is the reason that I can't sleep by myself at night. It's the reason I wake up with night terrors, and it's the reason that anytime I'm outside, I have a panic attack. Like, outside in the wilderness, not like yes. anytime I stand no, outside. No, anytime she leaves her dorm room, actually, screaming. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, my father was telling me for about a month, I was, I was saying, what am I going to be doing this summer? Because, again, I had no choice in yeah. my life, so I was waiting for him to tell me what I was doing this summer. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, well, we'll tell you closer time. We'll tell you closer time. It's a surprise. It's a surprise. Oh. And then he sat me down with my mother, not my stepmother, with my mother. Both of them in the same room is a very, very, very Rare occurrence. unlikely occurrence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they both sat down, and my father said he was sending me to wilderness therapy. So most people in this scenario aren't told in advance my father knew that he had enough control over me that i wouldn't run away i wouldn't i wouldn't react i wouldn't i wouldn't retaliate in any way mm -hmm. so he told me about a week in advance and Just think about the psychological trauma of knowing I would lay awake in bed at night and I had no idea what it was going to be like. I was trying to imagine it, but I couldn't imagine it. I had, it, it was, I, cause you can't understand it. You can't understand what it really is. Yeah. So then my parents, I said goodbye to my siblings and then I got in the car and we drove to Georgia. The worst three months of my entire life. 
So I want to give context because a lot of the time when kids in general, especially having been in treatment, when you hear them say, this was traumatic, I hated this, it didn't help me, that carries very little weight. You see someone who's like, okay, they don't want to get better, they're an addict, like, Daisy didn't, wasn't, but like, that's what you hear. That is what society oftentimes... Right. so the biggest issue mm-hmm. is that nobody believes those of us that say that it was horrible and traumatic mm-hmm. because... We're seen as untrustworthy. We're yeah. seen as liars, and we're seen as the people... Because so many people can be. A lot exactly, of because it's filled problems. with that. Mm-hmm. Exactly, mm-hmm. because so many people are going to... Okay, so let, let me start from the beginning. Yeah. So, I, I've told y'all my, my issues. Mm-hmm. Wilderness therapy is designed for people, for parents who think that their children are in literal imminent danger. They think that their child is going to kill themselves. They think that their child is going to overdose. They think that their child is going to run away and they will never find them again. That's what wilderness therapy was designed for. Yeah. I, on the other hand, my father told me a week in advance that I was going to be living in the woods for three months and I did nothing. Does that sound like the kind of kid that needed wilderness therapy? No. No, it does not. So I arrive at wilderness someone therapy. someone who, like, did severely struggle with suicidal ideation and did receive treatment for that. And even I didn't go to wilderness therapy. And I extremely effectively rewired that thought process and got out of that headspace not needing to live in the woods for months on end. So when you get to the wilderness treatment center, you say goodbye to your parents. Mm-hmm. And then they strip you down. Nothing on your body. No ponytail holders, no jewelry, no clothes. You get completely naked. Then they cavity search you. Um, that makes me uncomfortable here. They shower you down, and they give you new clothes to put on. Are you out there in the barn? <laughs> no. You get into a shower, but they watch you the entire time oh shower. Then you put on clothes, they, they give you clothes to put on, and they give you a backpack, and they don't answer any of your questions, and they put you in a car. Sometimes they don't give you a backpack, and you have to make your own backpack out of a tarp and leaves. Oh, yeah. Thank God it was not one of those. So, I got a backpack. Mm-hmm. But, yes, I did. Get a, I'll tell you oh, everything wow. I got. Living large. I know. <laughs> so, then, they put you in a car, and they say, they take you to go get a physical Mm-hmm. So you go to the doctor in your new wilderness clothes, which includes yeah. hiking cargo short pant- pants. You're wearing your cargo pants, mm-hmm. hiking boots, wool socks, a Walmart plain colored t-shirt, no uh, logos or anything, mm-hmm. a button-down shirt over it, like a fishing shirt to protect mm-hmm. you from the bugs. And then they take you to the doctor, you... You pee in a cup, they check you for pregnancy, they take your blood, and then they give you the opportunity to go eat somewhere. Your last, like, they drive through, they give you your... last meal. They call it a last meal. And I take Vyvanse, and it kills my appetite, so I was like, I'm not hungry. But I didn't understand what I was going into. Mm -hmm. And they said, trust me, you're gonna want to take this last meal, but I I can't eat during the day. So I ended up going through Chick-fil-A and just getting a little milkshake thing, just because they were acting like it was such a big deal. Yeah. At this point, the average girl is having a screaming meltdown in the car. Mm -hmm. I am sitting quietly 
and answering questions calmly. I get out of the car. Drinking her Chick-fil-A, you know. I walk down the trail and behind me are the two escorts Mm -hmm. and the two therapists stand up and they're looking at me very strangely because they put their hand out and they say hi I'm x and the other person says hi I'm x and I say hi I'm daisy bird it's nice to meet y'all and they're like what's wrong what Mm -hmm. and they were staring at me and I didn't understand why they were looking at me so quizzically Mm -hmm. and then I was um brought over to a mat separated from the rest of the group all the girls in the group are staring at me and i have no i'm not allowed to talk to anybody for the first 12 12 girls we were called g2 g2 and in my pack i had a sleeping bag a mat to sleep on a tarp Mm -hmm. to hang over my head a tarp to put under the ground i had a bag of clothes a bag of personal food a notebook a ballpoint pen and a bandana. I don't know if I already said this, but a bowl and a spoon, a hairbrush, and a toothbrush. Did you get toothpaste? Yes. Okay. But that that wasn't personal. Like we had one for the group. You share. Duh. We I love sharing my toothpaste <laughs> with twelve other girls. So then you're on Earth phase. Earth phase, you're not allowed to talk to anybody except for your mentor, who's a girl that's assigned to you. My mentor was horrible. <laughs> but I, I walked into the group. I walked into wilderness deciding that I, I was not going to be able to be upset about it. I had to, I had to just do it. I had to put on my, I had to tie my shoes and I had to get out there and just do it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did everything I was supposed to do. I checked off all the boxes and I was instantly a leader in the group as soon as I got off of Earth Phase and I was allowed to talk. You didn't eat your ballpoint pens? Oh my God. I didn't eat my ballpoint pens. But <laughs> whenever I, because I was the leader and I was the trusted girl from day one, I was never an issue. They never had to watch me. Define issue self-harming running away away, Mm -hmm. not following directions not participating in things such as like getting meal together or refusing a hike or not packing up on time how many miles a day i don't know we weren't allowed to know no clock we weren't allowed to know the time yeah we were on another time and we i don't know how much we hiked we just kept hiking but I I was never an issue. So one of the stories that I love to tell, well, I hate to tell. I'm on the very, very, very outside of camp. So the way that I like to explain it to people is that they set it up kind of like the solar system. Mm-hmm. So the sun at the center is where the staff sleep. And then as you go out in the rings, they're 30 feet apart. So 10 girls times 30 feet, I was 300 feet away from staff. Oh my god. Yes. And because I was the trustworthy one. And I actually had blocked this out of my memory until a couple of nights ago, I was watching a Criminal Minds episode about something happening in the wilderness, and it brought it all back. And I had to, like, I had to go sit in the bathroom and, like, collect it because I completely blocked this out of my memory. Yeah. And so, that's what our brains do, because if you had thought of that a year ago, you wouldn't have been able to function and process No. It. 
I wouldn't have been able to be okay. So we're laying there and we're in the middle of the Georgian wilderness, like not a road for miles. Mm -hmm. And we hear what I can only describe as it sounds like somebody's banging like a wooden stick on a pot. And it's at like a very constant rhythm. Uh And I'm, I'm terrified. I am like, I'm, I don't know what to do. I'm so scared. I'm crying. And you hear you, you hear other people like rustling and waking up because of what's going on. Yeah. And a couple of people are calling for staff. Mm-hmm. You just say like staff or you blow your whistle because you're given a whistle. And it, mm-hmm. that's happening for a couple of people. And um, I would be freaking blowing that whistle harder than like I could. I did, Someone out. Like, I oh, my God. Well, but that's what what people that's what people always say but it's this visceral thing inside of you where it's almost instinct takes over mm-hmm. and i was literally like i didn't want to blow my whistle because i was afraid of bringing attention to myself if there was something out there yeah and so uh, i see the staff in the distance i can see their silhouettes because they're up on the hill and i'm on the bottom mm-hmm. and i see one of them walk out and then they come back, and when we asked them in the morning what it was, they were like, we don't know. It happened again the next night, and it's just this banging, and I I still don't know where it came from, and it's, it's things that happen in the middle of the woods. You're literally in the middle of the woods, mm-hmm. like the wilderness, and there's only three adults with you. These adults are 25-year-old people who... They're natured. They're usually just, like, kids straight out of college who just really enjoy hiking. Yeah. And... No training. No psychological background. No. And it's... uh, The next morning, you just pack your stuff up, and you walk out, and you go, and and you pack... It was a race whenever you got to a new site to get to a... A sleeping spot because it was a competition for who could get closest to staff to feel the safest I'm gonna say that again we were competing with each other to feel safe while we slept at night holy shit because you had to be 30 feet away so you would run like like hell like sprint whenever they said that they were going to find breakout spots Mm -hmm. and it was I just remember this panic be coming over because you're, you are literally competing with your family, basically. They're your sisters mm-hmm. for who is going to be able to actually sleep tonight. Anytime it rained, you would, if you didn't get a very flat spot, it was, mm-hmm. you would typically get wet. And there was no way to dry it, so you were just wet. And you would just live your life wet until the clothes dried. Nice and soft. And... It's why at night I can't really sleep when it starts raining outside. Mm-hmm. Because when anytime it starts raining, I wake up because I feel like I need to get my bearings together. I feel like I need to make sure that everything is underneath my tarp. I need yeah. to make sure that I am in a position where running water isn't going to wash me down the hill. I'm, I'm having to go through a checklist in my mind of how to make sure that I don't quite literally have hypothermic conditions when I wake up in the morning. Mm-hmm. And... We, we had to hang up our food every night because it, it's called a bear hang. Mm-hmm. Because bears are naturally curious creatures, so they come towards 
humans oftentimes in the woods and I remember at one point because remember I'm on the edge because I'm the most trustworthy oh my god um and so right before bed they have a call out where they start with number one I was number two because I was like the leader person Mm -hmm. so the staff will yell out one and then you say two three so that they know everyone's there Mm -hmm. so we do the last sound off and then they came and get your shoes because you couldn't sleep with your shoes in case you ran so you had also no flashlights were allowed so you're in the pitch black alone with no shoes and you i was i was sitting there and i heard rustling and Mm -hmm. then a baby coyote came very close to my little shelter space i called for staff staff came over and they were like we don't really like know what you want us to do about the situation and i was like make it go away make it go away yeah and they were like well i don't think we should be concerned until like unless a, like a mother gets involved they leave and then i start he- hearing the baby coyote start howling for its mom and the mom starts howling back and it gets closer and closer and i yell for staff and nobody comes i yell for staff nobody comes i blow my whistle nobody comes and then i walk barefoot through the woods without a light until I hit staff's tent and I say, there's a fucking coyote by my tent. Yeah. And and then they're like, okay, then you can move your camp. In the middle. So then I, in the I moved it. Oh, but that reminds me of also we had, so we were in a, a temperate rainforest in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Yeah. And... A, a a a tropical storm came through. It was it was a remnant of a hurricane that happened mm-hmm. down the coast, yeah. but it eventually just become a torrential downpour. So we're hiking through, and there's thorns everywhere, and mm-hmm. it's pitch black. We're trying to set up our camp. Everybody's crying, and eventually, I just laid down my tarp. Didn't even put up my tarp on top. I just lay down, I got under my sleeping bag, I put a tarp on top of me, and I just let it rain on my body because I was so physically exhausted that I couldn't keep walking. Yeah. This was around the time that I started having horrible pains in my, like, lower abdomen. Like, to the point horrible where you pains. couldn't walk. I couldn't walk. So, previous to this, I hadn't complained about a single thing. I hadn't said a word about all the shit that was going on. I hadn't complained. I kept my head up high. I did what I was told. So then the first day that the staff came back, saw me come back from camp, screaming and crying and begging somebody to make me feel better and, like, in the fetal position on the ground, they immediately called for me to be evacuated out of the field. Mm-hmm. So then a car came and picked me up, and they took me to the hospital, and they found out that I had ovarian cysts that were bursting. I was bleeding, massive amounts of blood. Mm-hmm. And the so I hadn't had a shower in two months, and the Can doctor... Had a conversation with the doctor. Yeah, the doctor didn't know what like was hap like why this was yeah. like what was going on mm-hmm. so the staff had to explain to him that i was at a wilderness program and that i hadn't been outside in two months i was starving but i was too afraid to tell like they they constantly asked me for food they were like do you want any food do you want any food but i was so afraid of the staff thinking that i had just faked all of this to get, get like food, yeah. food and get to stay in a bed that i lied and i said that i wasn't hungry because it's how terrified I was that the staff would think that I was faking it. Yeah. And uh, so I had my first pap smear. I had a ultrasound, an, in, an 
so all of this was happening for the first time and I had to be completely alone for legal reasons. So I was 16 years old, alone with a 60 year old doctor. I don't know what's happening. It's my first time out in the real world in weeks. I spend like six or seven hours there and then it's, they discharge me and it's too late for me to go home, like go back to the woods. Mm -hmm. So then they take me to base where I slept on the floor and it was, it's one of my best memories there being under a building. I actually slept. I felt completely safe and I, no family, no one, no one. mm -mm. And the next day I was back out in the fields uh, I was still bleeding. Nothing had stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just had to bleed it out. So I was bleeding. I was having to, like, stumble through walking from hike to hike, just mm-hmm. doing what I had to do so that I could get out. Mm-hmm. And all of the work that I did at Wilderness was completely surface level. I didn't learn a single thing from Wilderness. What do you mean by work? The only thing that Wilderness taught me was that you truly cannot trust anybody who's only getting their three basic needs met. What do you mean? So, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Mm -hmm. the core of wilderness is that they break it down to where you only get your basic needs met. Mm -hmm. You are getting food, water, clothing, and shelter. So in that sort of environment, it breaks you down emotionally and it makes you reveal more about yourself than you typically would and it makes all of your walls come down. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, it makes all of your walls come up because you're literally in in fight and flight mode for most of the time. And the issue that most girls had and why they were there for longer is because their body chose fight, uh, like they chose fight or flight. Mm -hmm. So they would run away or they would fight staff tooth and nail my body chose fight in a different way Mm -hmm. i did exactly as i was told i got incredibly close yeah to do since you were a baby i got incredibly close to all of the staff everybody adored me and i was so desperate to leave i i was it was you don't really know yourself until you're sitting in a it's pitch black at night you have no idea where you are and you just silently cry because you are completely powerless to what's happening to you you can't do anything and when you try and voice that they say you are you do have control you do have power you, you have the power to do the program. You have the power to do what you're supposed to do. And I did everything that I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And I still spent three months there. So is there evidence behind wilderness therapy? Yes. There's, there's evidence that wilderness therapy... The issue is that evidence is such a strange word when it comes to the psyche, the human psyche and the emotional growth. Yeah. Because... My group was for people with family trauma and abandonment issues. Mm -hmm. So I was with a group of girls, like-minded individuals, I suppose, (laughs) dealing with the same issues. And you're not allowed to speak unless the staff can hear you. So you 
you live in this world of, of secret notes. So as far as knowing evidence, the evidence that I saw mm-hmm. by knowing the girls that came out of wilderness and the girls that I was there with, mm-hmm. I think what it provides is a shock. It yeah. shocks people that don't want to live anymore into being afraid of dying. It makes it to where you're afraid to mess up. You're afraid because of what might happen to you. Your brain starts associating the negative behaviors with the horrors of wilderness. Yeah. But the issue that I find is that most girls that go through wilderness have completely blocked out all the horrors of wilderness and they only remember the good stuff. The stuff where you're standing around with girls that you've gotten incredibly close to, singing songs, whenever you're doing a stupid hike where you're all miserable but you're all laughing because somebody fell over, when you got to see a waterfall, when they got brought us hot dogs on the 4th of July, you only remember those things. And when you physically push your body and mind so far that you think you can handle anything. And you but think you really you're happy just... because you have to, you have to hold on to something. Yeah. You have to, you have to convince yourself it. that you're enjoying it or else you will literally fall apart. Yeah. So most of the girls that were in my group ended up going elsewhere after. Mm-hmm. So uh, to a treatment boarding school or a residential program. Residential programs are a lot rarer. Mm-hmm. Just because it's designed for a more intense stuff. Yeah. So most girls went to therapeutic boarding schools. Which we, from there, me and Sadie's stories converge. It's not that we did not benefit at all from this treatment. It's that the pros did not outweigh the cons. And all of yeah. this could have done on an outpatient setting. The purpose... In, in another the- episode, we should probably talk about just the toxicity in the environment. We should. That was we just have it today. today. We didn't. Yeah, we were supposed to talk about school, and instead we spent like forty-five minutes on my life story, which I knew was gonna happen. It's because so, it's so good. It's so interesting. It draws people in. I was so ready to roast our boarding school today, and now I'm tired because I talked about my wilderness trauma. <laughs> okay, I think the big takeaway from this episode is. For listeners, if you've made it this far, we're at an hour and 30 minutes on the clock, (laughs) is that the purpose of mental health treatment is to give you the skills to cope with your environment. Worst case scenario, you are so deeply dysfunctional that you have to be removed from that environment to learn those skills. And so you want to minimize that as much as possible because if you don't learn how to function in your environment that you're in consistently, it's no, there's no purpose. There's no benefits. And so we did gain things from being in treatment and going through these experiences, but the pros did not outweigh the cons in much of it could have been done on an outpatient setting. Mm-hmm. So after all of that, I want to say I'm so excited for our episode that we we're supposed to record today about roasting treatment and boarding school because it was deeply traumatic and horrible and i think i should definitely unpack that in therapy before we do that because i want to like get to the dirt of why it was so like difficult and traumatic yeah and horrible it's blocked away i gotta i gotta remember but yeah so thank you so much daisy for coming on thank you i think we're at how many three this is gonna be our second or third episode with you on the podcast 
we're probably gonna have like 17 by the end of this but yeah we had a phenomenal conversation stay tuned for our episode about therapeutic boarding school where we spill the tea about how horrible that was but yeah kisses ciao